Thank you, Keith. So evident that the Spirit of God is in this place. I love this church. Whenever people are dancing during a service, you know God is present. It's like David. Remember David dancing before the ark? Just, just so excited to serve the Lord. Just want to dance. There's a, there's a great uh, a commentator that I read on Revelation talking about the heavenly worship, and he said, In heaven there are no boring sermons or instructional lectures. There is much music. Well, let me begin by I wanted to share one of my favorite stories from church history. There's so many great ones, but this is one of my absolute favorites. At the height of the Reformation, a young John Calvin decided that God had not called him really out into the mission field, really out into pastoral work, kind of in in public ways of sharing the gospel. Instead, he decided that God had called him to just study and research and write and just to kind of hide away into his house. And in fact, biographers have uh, said this about Calvin, that Calvin just really didn't like being around people. (laughs) He really wanted to just stay home and study. And just write and research. That's what Calvin wanted to do. Well, kind of a leisurely life of a scholar. Well, there was was a fiery preacher of the Reformation, and his name was William Farrell. And this didn't sit well with William Farrell. William Farrell heard that Calvin had decided this pursuit in his life, and he went to Calvin's house and told him to his face, I am calling down a curse, the curse of God and the curse of Christ on your leisurely studies and on your academic work and on all the things you're thinking about doing for not coming out and preaching the gospel to people so desperately in need. He basically said, you better get out of this house and serve the church that desperately needs you in such a time as this, or may the curse of God be upon you. I would like to have met that guy, William Farrell. So he didn't write much. He just went out and he was, a, he was clearly a, just a, a powerful preacher. We don't have much writings. I don't know if we have any writings from him, actually. But we know the story is true because Calvin actually tells it in the introduction to his commentary on the Psalms. And it's free online. Anybody can go, go just Google it. You can uh, read it. It's pretty powerful. He actually says, in the, as he tells the story, he says that this uh, curse from Farrell terrified him so much that he changed his whole course of life. He said, okay, I'll still research, I'll still study, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out into the fields too. I'm going to get out into the harvest field. And he, of course, if you know the story of Calvin, he remained a pastor till the end of his life in Geneva. And he was, of course, one of the main key public figures of the Reformation. And all because Pharaoh dropped the curse of God on him. There's not many stories like that that I've found in church history, but I love that. And I don't want to bring Pharaoh's curse down on anybody here at this church this morning. That's not my purpose. What a terrible thing, I guess, preacher to do. But if any of us have chosen a life of comfort, any of us who call on the name of Christ as our Lord, if any of us have chosen a life of comfort and leisure and laziness and lukewarmness, and many times we do this subconsciously, right? As opposed to following Christ and obeying his call to bring the gospel to all nations, we bring Pharaoh's curse on ourselves. We bring Pharaoh's curse on ourselves. I think Pharaoh's challenge is just as true today for us as it was in the days of Calvin, if not more so. For such a time as this, it's not the time to be sitting on the couch or on the lazy boy or whatever you sit on and binge watch Netflix shows. This is the time to heed the call to the Lord of the harvest and get to work. His, his teaching is clear. Our marching orders are clear. You know them well, I'm sure. 
Just give you two examples. We have this in all the Gospels and in Acts, some form of the Great Commission. But the most famous, of course, is all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, for, commanded you, for surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And, of course, Acts 1.8, more of a, just a declaration. This is what my followers will do. People who have the Holy Spirit come upon them and, 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 and indwell them, they will be my witnesses. Not prosecuting attorneys. They will be my witnesses. And they will go. They will start in Jerusalem. They will go to Judea and Samaria. And they will go to the ends of the earth. And where are we, by the way? We're in Garland, Texas. Is this the ends of the earth from when Jesus actually said that? Yeah, I think, think what, his prophecy has come true, has it not? They have gone to the ends of the earth. And a key verse that I'm going to be focusing on this morning, so you can have your Bibles open to Luke 10. Well, what Jesus says in Luke 10, verse 2, is going to be our key theme for this morning. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord. Beseech the Lord. It's my favorite translation of that word. Beseech the Lord of the harvest. Therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It's a key verse that we're going to be going back to. There are two parts to this message. First part is I want to lay out kind of for you the religious landscape of the world today. What are the major religions? How many, how many adherents are there? Where has the gospel yet to penetrate in our world today? Some of you may already know these things, but I'm going to be sharing that in the first part. And uh, especially this, prime, uh, this uh, key part of the world that has not been penetrated with the gospel yet, known as the 1040 window. Second part is I want to just hear and go through the great words of Christ, the great call that he gave to 70 missionaries he sent out two by two in this chapter, in Luke chapter 10. But the central theme of both parts is this verse. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are Few. The workers are few indeed. I'm going to show you how true that statement of Jesus really is. So first, what is the religious landscape of the world today? I'm going to ask you a few non-rhetorical questions. So I actually want you to answer if you know them. Okay, how many human beings are on planet Earth today? Yeah, a little over 7 billion. We're running at about 7.5 or so, 7 billion people. Now, how many of those 7 billion people, I'm not saying are for sure Christians, but at least confess Jesus as Lord, say that they are Christian? How many? Almost 2.5, different, different stats show different, a little bit different numbers, but like 2.2, 2.5 billion people. So almost a third of planet Earth at least confess Jesus as Lord. And this would be, of course, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and all the Protestant denominations, the three branches of Christendom. All people who basically can all, we can all at least read the Apostles' Creed together and agree on that, even if we divide on many other things. And then how many world religions are there? How many actual world religions are there in the world? And, and, and missiologists will say a world religion is something, you have to have at least 100 million adherents. You have to at least have in the, in the millions of adherents. How many are there? You'd be surprised how few there actually are. There's only about four or five. There's only about four or five, and I'll show you why it's four or five. There's really just four by that criteria, but, but people uh, do say five because of Judaism, and Judaism is a lot smaller. I have them up here for you. Here's a little snapshot. 
of the world religions. This is according to Pew Research from 2010. So as I said, according to them, Christianity is the most uh, followed religion in the world today, 2.2 billion. Islam is at number two at 1.6 billion. Hinduism, almost exclusively in India. Just about every Hindu in the world is in India in the 90 percentile at a billion. And the unaffiliated, the nuns, I don't know if you're familiar with those terms, but they call them the nuns, meaning people who sign up and register to vote. They'll, when it says, what religion are you? They'll say none. They'll say none. Now, it's important to know that there's been a lot of stats done on the nuns and, and people that are really outspoken atheists in our world like to say, oh, we're the nuns. Look how many nuns there are. Well, the studies actually show that there's only about maybe a quarter of the nuns that are actually atheists, that are actually self-proclaimed atheist or agnostic. 75% of the nuns believe in a higher power. They believe in a God. They, they would say they're spiritual. In fact, you probably meet a lot of people that are not going to church, but they say, well, I don't go to church. I'm not, I'm not affiliated with any religion, but I'm spiritual. See, this would be the nuns. And there's about 1 billion of these people. And so really about 250 million of them maybe will uh, identify as agnostic or atheist. But obviously, see, that doesn't really count as a, a religion, right? <laughs> that, that, that's not a world religion. So that doesn't count as one, but that's, that is key for, for what people believe in our world or don't believe. Buddhism runs at about 500 million, and then uh, Judaism's always on there just because it's so ancient. I mean, it's just so amazing that Judaism is still so dominant. I mean, uh, have you ever sat next to a Spartan at Starbucks? (laughs) Have you ever sat next to a Babylonian at Jason's Deli? (laughs) I bet you sat next to a Jew, though. That's an amazing thing, how ancient Judaism is. And the fact that there are still Jews today, that's also a prophecy, by the way, of, of what God said. My, this nation will never be wiped off the face, face of the earth as long as the moon and the sun stand. And just for fun, I'd like to, I, I wanted you to see on these lists Scientology. It annoys me that that's even considered a religion, <laughs> that there's 50,000 followers or so of Scientologists. There are more followers of Jediism. Do you know what Jediism is? <laughs> I hope we don't have any followers of Jediism in here. It's the ultimate nerd religion. There, there was actually a study done on this, and they put Jediism as a part of this list of religions in the UK and the US, and almost a million people said that they are followers of Jediism. So there are more, I wanted you to see that there are more followers of Jediism than there are Scientologists, but again, neither of those are world religions. So really, these are really the only dominant religions and worldviews today, and, and notice what this is, this is the projected numbers of adherents of each of these in 2050, according to Pew. Okay, so they're not, you know, they're not prophets, but this is, you know, by birth rates and everything else, they're going to be pretty close probably to what uh, the number of adherents will be in, an, in, in another 30 years. And again, Christian and Islam dominating. And notice how, how fast Islam has jumped, over a billion people. And that's primarily because of the birth rates. And uh, this, this, is, this is the estimate of about 9 billion people on the planet. So they think there'll be about 9 billion people on the planet in 2050. And 6 billion people on the planet will either be Christian or Muslim at that time. Isn't that amazing? And something that uh, is important to point out, because we hear a lot from our atheists and agnostic, agnostic friends, that this atheism and agnosticism is rising and religion is being wiped away. Well, it's actually not true. All the stats show the opposite. What is true is that atheism and agnosticism in the nuns category is rising in places like Europe and in places like the U.S. right now. But on a global scale, it's shrinking. 
And in fact, this is straight from the Pew Research. It says, atheists, agnostics, and other people who do not affiliate with any religion, though increasing in countries such as the United States and France, will make up a declining share of the world's total population. And the reason for that, they, they tell the reason for that, it's not just them, but it's also Buddhists. For Buddhists and people who identify as nuns or, or atheists or agnostic, it's because they're not having kids. They're not having kids. So if you have any atheist friends, if you have any Buddhist friends, tell them start having kids or they're going to die out. They need to start having kids. They don't, they don't have Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. You see, you see what a blessing that verse really is. As I said, all the evidence shows that Christianity and Islam are currently dominating and will be dominating in the next at least 30, 50 years, maybe 100 years. Who knows what could come next? But that, that is going to be the dominant worldviews in the world. We need to be ready. And when you break these world religions down, as I've thought really deeply about these ideas and, and worldviews and really what they're saying, there's really only three options on the table for worldviews. When you really narrow it all down, there's really only three options, only three answers, three different answers in our world today to the most simple questions, to the, to the children's question, to the kids' question. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going after we die? What is our purpose? What is the meaning of life? Those simple questions, there are really only three answers to those questions. And really the three answers are, one, pantheism, which is represented by Hinduism and Buddhism on the list. The other one would be monotheism, that there is one creator God. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a resurrection. That would be Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And then the other one would be, would be the atheist view, basically nothingness. There will be nothing after. This is, this is what we have, and there's nothing after that. And there was nothing before that. Those are your three really options to those questions. And I love C.S. Lewis. He took, he didn't bring up atheism here. He was talking about of all the religious ideas, he succinctly summarized this better than I've found in anyone. He said, for my own part, I have sometimes told my audience that the only two things really worth considering are Christianity and Hinduism. Islam is only the greatest of the Christian heresies. Buddhism, only the greatest of the Hindu heresies. Real paganism is dead. All that, all that was best in Judaism and Platonism survives in Christianity. There isn't really for an adult mind this infinite variety of religions to consider. Isn't that great? So he summarizes it down, just like I said, basically to this... Jude, uh, Hinduism or Buddhist view versus uh, the Christian view. But then he's just not talking about uh, the non-belief. So the atheism would be the other option. So really you just have three options. So if you hear someone say, which I hear all the time, there's so many religions. There's, it's so confusing. There's so many different views out there. How, how does God, why does God make it so confusing? Say, no, there's not. <laughs> no, there's not. There's really just three options. And there's some variations on these options. But the, for the big questions, there's really only three options out there. And then say, now let me tell you about Jesus. Because when you put Jesus next to pantheism and atheism, his beauty, his truth shines over those, right? It's like the sun compared to just a lamp of light here. That was a little bit about the religious landscape of the world and the key ideas. But now let's look again at Luke chapter 10, verse 2. The workers are few. Let me show you how, why that statement is so true, has always been true. Of the 7 billion people on the planet today, how many do missiologists consider unreached? And unreached, what, what, what people who really study this, and it's mainly you know, Christian missionaries and, and missiologists, people really trying to find how do we get the gospel to the ends of the earth? Who still has not gotten the gospel? They call certain parts of the world, certain nations, certain people groups, unreached. And what they mean by unreached is, of course, they're lost, 
But it's more than lost. It's more they don't even have access to the gospel. They can't even get access to the gospel where they are. There's no way for them to even hear the gospel. Okay, so, of course, there's lost people, right, in Garland and the DFW area. But it's a different kind of lost, right? They can go into a church. They can pick up a book. They can go see the Case for Christ movie, right? So they, they have a lot of options to hear the gospel. They can turn on the radio. But there's a certain amount of people in the world today in certain nations where they don't even have access to any of that, that they're completely unreached. And how many of the 7 billion are in that state, unreached? 3 billion. 3 billion. And this makes up about 5,621 uh, 5, people groups. They've actually broken up by the people groups. One of my favorite examples of, of seeing a people group that's unreached come to Christ would be uh, the great story of Jim Elliott. You know, Jim Elliott and his four friends went to the Wadani tribe and they shared the gospel with them. They were completely unreached, didn't know the gospel at all. They got speared to death. And then their, uh, his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and, and, and other people from those families went back to the tribe. The whole tribe came to Christ. The whole tribe is following Jesus as, as of this day. Last that I, they have that movie, to, to the, end of this, the End of the Spear. It's a really good movie. That's, an, that's a peop, one people group that was unreached, and now they are saved. Now they know the Lord Jesus. But there are 5,621 of these people groups that are still lost today, according to the missiologists. And you can read a lot about this, the Joshua Project. Google them. on, on they, they put all these stats together, uh, that this work that's been done. And here's what's really insane. 90% of that 3 billion, 90% of those 5,600 people groups live in what is called the 1040 window. What is known as the 1040 window. What is the 1040 window? I got you two charts to help you kind of see it on a map. So the 1040 window is basically this rectangular area of North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, and it's approximately between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude. And that's where we get the 1040 window. And this, this language has been used since the early 1990s by missiologists seeking to finish the Great Commission, right, to seek, see the gospel go to all nations, like Jesus said. And you can imagine the religions that are dominating these areas. They estimate that there are around 724 million Muslims in the 1040 window, 787 million Hindus, and 240 million Buddhists within the 1040 window. And this is also where the vast majority of the Lord's, of the world's poor are, by the way. This, is, this also is where most poverty is in our world. If Bill Gates did a presentation of where he's trying to reach people for, in poverty and humanitarian efforts, he would show this same kind of area. And here's where it gets really sad. That's not sad enough. Of all the Christian missionaries in the world today that, are, that have gone out, active missionaries that have gone out into the world to preach the gospel, what percentage of them are in this area? What percentage? According to the Joshua Project, according to all these things that I've studied, 3%, they say. 3% are in these areas. Where are the other 97%? They're in Hawaii preaching the gospel. No, 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 that's not true. That's not true. Y'all don't support missionaries from Hawaii, do you? I don't want to bash missionaries to Hawaii. People in Hawaii need the gospel too. And according to the World Christian Encyclopedia, of all the money designated to missions from the U.S., how much goes to foreign missions, to missions outside the U.S.? 5.4%. 
5.4%. And of that 5.4%, they say 1% goes to the 1040 window. 1% goes to this area that has 90% of the world's lost that are left to hear, that need to hear the gospel. The workers are few indeed. Jesus not only commands us to beseech the Lord to send workers into his harvest field, but he calls many of us to go, like the Bradleys. He calls many of us to go, to go, to be sent, and actually physically go. In fact, today, I had to bring him up since today is his anniversary. It just worked out that way. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was born today in 1832. You can check it out on Wikipedia. I hope Wikipedia is not wrong because that's where I got the information. <laughs> no, it's true. I checked it. <clears throat> the great missionary to China really transformed missions to China. I know David and Floor know a little bit about this. I, I wanted to quote him a little bit, some inspiring words on his anniversary. He says, it will not do to say that you have no special call to go to China and then replace China with just anywhere outside, outside the U.S. With these facts before you and with the command of the Lord Jesus to go and preach the gospel to every creature, you need rather to ascertain whether you have a special call to stay at home. It's a great challenge, isn't it? We always think, oh, well, I need a call to go somewhere else. Well, where's your call to stay at home? And he said, if I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? I love it. Great question. Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? My wife and I also are called. We, we believe we have been called to go, to be sent to specifically to the Middle East. My wife and I both have had a heart for missions uh, for over 10 years now. So this is kind of 10 years in the making. And God even set a fire in my heart early days at DTS when I took uh, in my master's degree. One of my first courses that I took was an intro to missions class. And they laid out some of these same statistics about the 1040 window. And God has set a fire in my heart to go there. But the call didn't come. We, we've It's been over... Ten years now since I sat in that class, and we thought the call would come before this. But just like Gandalf, God is never late. He's never early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Much better than Star Wars, by the way. Lord of the Rings, much better than Star Wars. But God's call was right on time because uh, there's so many other, I won't share them all now, but so it's so clear that God has been preparing us for this moment, and it's the right time. And so he's called us to move, and so we want to go and just help. We want to go. We were excited that the Lord gave, gave a clear call, we believe, when we were say to go and to, and to help in any way we can. We, we feel like that, that uh, we haven't had a vision, but I feel like that man that, that uh, came into Paul's vision when he said, come over here and help us. Come over here and help us. And, of course, we want to help with humanitarian. We want to help you know, feed and, and, and clothe and, and anything we can do physically on the physical needs. But what is the real help? The real help is the gospel. The real help that the world needs is Jesus. They need Christ. They need the peace of Christ. They need his salvation. They need his blood atonement for their souls. And so that's what we seek to bring. So we're so thankful for an amazing church like this, for a pastor like Keith, who I know has a, such a heart for the lost and such a heart for missions. And we just uh, we cover your prayers. We, we thank you for, for praying for us. We're leaving this August, by the way. So we're, we're, we're heading out uh, first week of August. Inshallah is the... Arabic word for in God's will, by God's will, inshallah. The rest of my time, I just want to look at Luke chapter 10. So just go to Luke chapter 10, and I want to issue some challenges. 
this great call from the Lord to the 70 or 72 different manuscripts divide on that. But after this, it says the Lord appointed Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. I love the way that's worded. You notice that he sent people to go to cities where he was about to go. And what did they say? Repent. Believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. And then very soon after that, what happened? Jesus would show up. Jesus would come to that very city. He is the kingdom of God. He was the presence. He brought the presence of the kingdom to this earth. We're still awaiting the full consummation. Just as as Keith prayed with the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The fullness of the kingdom has not come yet, but Jesus brought the beginning of the kingdom when he came and his miracles and his exorcisms and his teachings and ultimately his death and his resurrection inaugurated the kingdom of God. And we continue that work as we seek to spread the kingdom throughout the world. But we're we're kind of saying the same thing as we go to any city and say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Eventually, Jesus will come back to these cities. Jesus is going to come. He's going to come back to these cities. And then our great verse, verse 2. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I think what Jesus is saying when he says the harvests are plentiful, he's saying there are many people all throughout the world and nations all throughout the world who will believe if someone would just go and tell them. They will believe. They will hear the gospel and their eyes will be opened and their hearts will be opened like Lydia. God opened her heart to hear the gospel. And and there's people like Lydia in every nation and every people group across the world. And if you would just go to them and preach the gospel, many will be hardened and not not receive it and, and turn away. But many will believe. Many will believe. The harvest is plentiful. But how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how will... Someone preached to them, unless they are sent, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, as Paul says in Romans 10. And all throughout church history, the workers have been few. But yet those few have conquered the world. This is the insight God gave to me while I was studying this. I've always read this as, it's so sad it's few. We need it to be many. We need it to be more. But as I've thought about it, but it's always been God's way to use the few to conquer the world. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I mean, you think about the few fishermen that took, on, that took on the Roman Empire. You think about the few that have gone on and brought the gospel all the way here to North America, to the other side of the world from Jerusalem. It's an incredible thing. And lastly, Jesus says, pray, beseech, beg. This is a strong word. This isn't the normal word for ask or it's used only a few times in the New Testament. And it's a very strong word. Beseech, beg God. It's, it's what he wants to do. Call upon him to send out more. And the Lord of the harvest, with Jesus saying it, is clearly God the Father. But really we could think of Christ as the Lord of the harvest as well, as he's seated at the right hand of God. And he's the one who sends the Spirit. And he's the one who sends out the missionaries and the people to preach the gospel. But be careful when you do this, because when you pray this, he might be sending you. He might be sending you. And this is the great, I, I read a, a great Spurgeon, I mean a great sermon from Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon on this passage, and uh, this is one of the things he said. He was saying this to his congregation. This was sometime in the late 1800s. He said, What if God this morning should move some of you to feel that men are perishing and you cannot let them perish? What if you should pray, Lord, send out men to save souls? 
And then he should put his hands on you and say, you are the man yourself. Behold, I send you. I love that. I know, I know Keith would rejoice at such news. The only greater joy for a pastor than seeing a lost soul saved is to see a saved soul sent. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 3. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. So just just uh, something that stands out to me when he says, look for a man of peace. It's really neat. All the Christians in Jordan that, that I know, they speak about the king there, King Abdullah, as a man of peace. He's a man of peace. He's, more, he's Muslim, but he's moderate, and he, he's friends with Israel, and he, he allows uh, the, the churches there, and he's a man of peace. God changes the hearts of kings, as we read all throughout the scriptures, right? Verse 7, stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Don't miss that. Jesus says to the missionaries, you can eat whatever they set before you. What if they set before him bacon? Jesus approves bacon, you see? It's scriptural evidence. When you enter a town, you are welcomed. Eat what is set before you. Oh, that, that's the verse I was waiting there. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to you, our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. And we see Paul and Barnabas doing this in the book of Acts. They sweep the dust off their feet on certain towns that reject them. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me, God the Father. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Such a great word. Again, these are the few workers, those 70. These are the few, but they have all this authority invested in them divested them from Christ. The authority to overcome all the power of the enemy. To step on snakes and scorpions. And this is what the few, the few who obey Christ and go out and proclaim the gospel, this is what they find. They will prevail. They will find themselves to be more than conquerors for him who loves them. The gospel will go forth to all nations eventually. Jesus said it. He said the gospel will go to all nations and then the end will come. It's just a matter of kind of how long it takes. I wonder if the free will has something going on there where maybe we could have ended it about a thousand years ago if, the, if, if Christians had just gone out to all nations then. But the gospel will go to all nations and it will be through a few. And just a great challenge. Spurgeon, again, from that another sermon I read from him that really just set my heart on fire. He said, the God of Jacob is our refuge and none. This is his last this is the last thing he said. You can tell he's reaching a height of oratory in the sermon. He says, The God of Jacob is our refuge, and none can stand against his eternal power and Godhead. The everlasting gospel is our banner, and with Jehovah to maintain it, our standard never shall be lowered. In the power of the Holy Ghost, truth is invincible. Come on, you hosts of hell and armies of the aliens. Let craft and criticism, rationalism and priestcraft do their best. The word of the Lord endureth forever. 
even that word which by the gospel is preached unto men. I just love that. It's really powerful. In the power of the Holy Ghost, truth is invincible. This is Spurgeon's version of bring it on. Bring it on. So my primary challenge to you this morning is to be one of these few workers. To be one of the few. To be one of the few workers for Christ. And I know this church is already one of the few churches passionate about missions and lost around the world. All of you can pray, right? All of us can pray. All of us can beseech the Lord. All of you can give portion of your treasures to this great work that's going on in the nations. But some of you might be called to go. Some of you might be called to go. But all of us in some way can be a part of this great work of seeing Christ exalted in every nation on the planet. In fact, as it's been said many times, and it's true, many of the nations have come right here. We're in such a melting pot, right? Syrian refugees... There's great work being done with Syrian refugees by churches all around these areas. There's international students at all the colleges in Dallas and these different areas at SMU. And your neighbors, many of your neighbors are from the nations, are from places around. So you have the glorious gospel. Give them the glorious gospel. Build relationships with them. Invite them over. Be a neighbor in Christ to them. I liked what uh, this one commentator, William Barclay, said on this passage. He said, Christ wants all men and women to hear the good news, but they will never hear it unless there are those who are prepared to cross the seas and the mountains and bring the good news to them. There are those who cannot do other than pray because of physical limitations, and their prayers are indeed the strength of the laborers. But that is not the way for most of us. For those of us who have a strength of body and health of mind, not even the giving of our money is enough. If the harvest of men and women is ever to be reaped, then every one of us must be a reaper. For there is someone whom each one of us could and must bring to God. Who are those people around you? Revelation 7 also makes it clear that one day, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So those 5,600 and whatever it was, people groups, 5,621 people groups, there will be at least a few believers from all of those eventually proclaiming Christ, saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain for me. In heaven, we've seen it. John's already seen it. He's shown it, in, shown it to us in Revelation. And Christ is calling us, each one of us, to profess him as Lord. Each one of us who profess him as Lord to be a part of seeing that happen. We can be a part of those few workers that see that happen. It's already for sure going to happen. But we get to be a part of that great work of seeing it happen. To quote Hudson Taylor again, Can we do too much for Christ? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? Jesus was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Let me pray. God in heaven, we just praise you and we thank you for this morning as we've been able to worship you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, to hear testimonies, to hear about missionaries being sent out, to hear uh, prayers, to participate in the communion, thinking on your blood and your your uh, body broken for us and shed for us on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, for the salvation of the world. We just thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, God, for Christ and what he's done for us. Let us uh, lift up this banner, lift up the banner of Christ, whether here in Garland and Dallas or in Ethiopia or, or in Jordan or anywhere in the world, in China. We just pray, God, that your gospel would go forth. We pray we would see in our generation, the gospel go to all nations. And the end would come because that means that Jesus would return. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.
Amen. We want to continue to pray into this as we we sing this next song. Lord, we declare that you are Lord of the harvest. You're the God of salvation.